Um, so I'm going to start off with a question. Everybody, well, not everybody, but you talk with me long enough, you find out a couple things. You find out that I really like science fiction, fantasy, and board games. Um, and does anybody, has anybody here played the board game Catan? Okay, handful of you. All right, that's good. Has anybody played Monopoly? More of you. Okay, all the people, right? If you, ha- if you played Monopoly, I would highly suggest you stop playing Monopoly and play Catan. Um, but anyways, if you're playing one of these board games, right, like you've got certain conditions, things that you need to do in order to kind of win the game, right? In Catan, you're trying to like earn so many points and you earn those points by building towns, building cities, you know, playing the night card, getting um, these certain victory point cards, right? And then the most coveted, or at least one of the ways that I love to get a good victory point in order to win the game is having the longest road. But if you've ever played Catan, you know that like there can kind of be this competition over who's going to build the longest road. It can kind of go back and forth and back and forth. And the game is not actually uh, about having the longest road. It's about having the most points. Well, if you're so fixated on getting the longest road, what happens? Well, somebody else who's not fighting for the longest road is getting all the other points all the other way. They come up from behind and win. If you're like, what, Luke, I have no idea what you're talking about. If you've played Monopoly, right, it's like if you're fixated so much on just getting those really high-end, like really expensive properties laid on the board, you're like, these are the ones I'm going to get. I'm only going to try and get these properties. And all the while, you ignore all the other players, and the other players are getting all the utilities, all the railroads, they're getting like they're like middle of the pack kind of properties all built up. Yeah, yeah, you gotta get, gotta get, and then and what do they do? They win, right? Because they had the whole thing in focus. They weren't so fixated on just one thing. They had the goal of the game in mind. They were they they didn't lose focus. Now losing focus, kind of getting fixated on maybe the wrong thing inside of a board game. Um, isn't the worst thing to happen, unless you're really competitive like me. Um, well, I'm not that competitive, but um, I can be in Catan. Um, that was what I spent pretty much the entire pandemic doing, by the way, is playing Catan. Um, but if you lose your focus in a board game, that's one thing. But if you lose focus on your goals, on your family, on your values, on the things that are most important in life, that's a much more significant deal. That's a big deal, right? If we've lost focus on what, is, what are we supposed to be prioritizing, what are we supposed to be going after, what are the things that are supposed to be orienting how we make decisions in life and what we pursue, we begin to get into a bigger thing. So I've got this question is, have you ever lost focus? Have you ever lost focus of the main thing before, of the things that are absolutely important? We're in July now, so we're over half of the year is over. And, you know, normally at the beginning of the year during New Year's, you know, we do New Year's resolutions. Maybe you pick a word for the year. We're maybe kind of thinking like, all right, what's, what, is, what does the Lord have for me in this year? What are the things I'm supposed to be pursuing and doing? Well, it's July now. Have we thought about any of those things that we were prayerful about going into the new year? Or have we 
lost focus? Have we been um, routinely asking ourselves prayerfully, what is it that the Lord actually has for me in today or has for me in this week? Am I focused on the right things? Or have I gotten distracted by the busyness of the year or the busyness of life and all of the demands on my time and my attention, all the things that I could possibly be doing, have I lost focus? And I think that Jesus is calling us to make sure that we haven't lost that focus. We've been in this series, we've been going through the book of Mark, and we, this is our several weeks through it, and as we've been going through it, I'm seeing a resounding sort of theme, uh, sort of a, a thread that is connecting all of the sermons that have been coming together out of this. And it seems to me that Jesus is calling us to focus our attention on him and to draw closer to him. I feel like if we were to go back to Cameron's first sermon in this series and talk about the, like, going and getting alone time with the Father and the importance of that, of the importance of being a good friend, of doing anything to help a friend get closer to Jesus. And last week about being willing to have ears that hear, to willing to be receptive to the word of the Lord. I think Jesus is calling us to come closer to him, and I think today fits along inside of this theme. So let's today, let's make sure that we haven't lost our focus. So we're going to be in the book of Mark. Um, We'll be picking up right around where we left off, Mark chapter 4. So if you want to go ahead and turn there if you have a Bible you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the pews underneath in front of you, and we will also have all the scriptures today up on the screen. Now, I don't know if it's... The Bible is such a dense book, right? It's a long book, but it's a dense book. All of the passages in there are so dense, and it surprises me I'm just shocked every time I'm reading the Bible or I'm reading about the Bible and I discover something that I had no idea was there. I was so, I was like, how many times have I read through Mark? Have I interacted with these passages? And I was completely oblivious to what was going on, to this theme, to this pattern that was happening. And, um, and that happened to me this week, is that I realized that there's three water narratives in the book of Mark. And they compose a significant theme or thread through the first half of the book. And today, we're going to kind of go through those water narratives. If you were here last week and you remember the, um, uh, the passage we were talking about, Jesus was doing these t- parable teachings on the water. He was sitting on a boat, and he was preaching to these people and telling them parables. And that's interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason I pointed out, Uh, last week was because it provided natural amplification because the water is a reflective surface and made his voice louder and more able to speak to people. But I also think it's not inconsequential to the fact that there's significant things that happen on that same body of water ever or moving on past this story. And so I wanted to 
touch off with this important verse from last week. If you remember, it was an important theme for us. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 9. This is Jesus closing out his first teaching on his parable. He says, Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear. And that theme continues on through the rest of what we're going to talk about today. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Don't just receive the noise that's coming out of my mouth, but actually seek understanding. Can you actually hear what is the message that is being communicated right in front of you? And so we're going to pick up on this this theme. Jesus finishes teaching his parables, and they decide to get on a boat, and they're going to go travel across the Sea of Galilee. So we're going to pick up in verse 35 of chapter 4. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side, leaving the crowd behind. And they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. Okay, so we've got this picture. Let's create the picture in our mind. Right? Jesus is like, let's go across to the other side, other side of the Sea of Galilee. They get into the boat. And then there's other boats with him. I don't know. In my mind, I'd never noticed that de- detail, that there were other people, other dis- others than just the disciples, other people who were maybe just outside of the circle of the disciples were also traveling along with Jesus at this time. And so they're in there. And then a furious squall came up. So the Sea of Galilee has, I think, three or at least two different valleys on either sides of it that kind of act as wind tunnels, that kind of funnel water into there. And then it's also significantly below sea, le- or below sea level. So that means the, the Sea of Galilee is rather kind of low. And what that does is it makes it the perfect place for low pressure and hot high pressure and all of that to meet and create some pretty nasty storms. So the Sea of Galilee is a place where like some nasty wind and some nasty storms can pop up quickly. But that shouldn't be too big of a problem, right? Because the disciples are mostly fishermen who fished on this sea. But we see that their response is not that of calm sailors who've been through this a number of times, right? A furious squall comes up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and they said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? They're absolutely panicked, right? That tells me that this was probably a pretty bad storm, right? They've probably seen some bad weather on on the Sea of Galilee before, but they're panicking because the water is coming over the bow of the ship. They're being crushed underneath these waves. And Jesus is asleep. He's, He's in the back. And they've got usually these like sandbags that they would put in the back of the boat to kind of help the boat stay afloat and not kind of tip over or be too buoyant. And Jesus is probably on the back sleeping on that underneath this kind of like bench. And they're like, Jesus, how are you asleep during this? Don't you care? We're all about to drown and die. And then Jesus gets up in verse 39, and he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? 
they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Just exactly who is this guy who was one moment asleep, unconcerned that we were about to drown, and then he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves, almost as if similar to when he was casting out demons, he rebukes the wind and the wave and it stops. And they're just like, who, who is that? Who's doing that? What does that mean about this guy that's on the boat with us? They're absolutely confused as to who this is. Now, this is important for a number of different reasons, but I want to point back to uh, a psalm. Let's turn to Psalm 107. Psalms is in the middle of your book of the Bible. The, so returning to Psalm 107, I'm going to be in verse 23 of that chapter. Um, if we were to do a survey of water in the Bible, that has got a number of different uh, themes, but particularly large bodies of the water, oceans, seas, have a, not just a, they have a significant meaning in ancient culture. To us, we're just like, oh, it's a big body of water, right? Like you go fishing on them, be smart, you know, boats and all of that. But to them, right, to a, if you think of, you know, an ancient culture, the ocean and its waters and its depths of not knowing what's below, not being able to go deep and down under and seeing that there just seems to be an endless bottom to it. It was kind of representative of all the kind of chaos and disorder and lack of control. It was a powerful thing that could, one in one way, get you from one place to another place, or it could absolutely drown you, depending on what happened on the ocean. And so we see often in the Old Testament that God's control and power over the ocean is displayed. If we think about the first time that the deep waters are mentioned in the Bible, we would think Genesis 2. The Spirit of the Lord hovered over the deeps of the earth. And that's kind of Lord coming and bringing order and creation out of what is unordered and uncreated and deep and dark and out of um, chaos. And so God is the one who has control over the, the, the limits of the ocean and what it can do. And so here we have an example of this where God uh, has control over the ocean not in a dissimilar way than Jesus demonstrated. So let's start in verse 23. Verse 23 says this, Some went out on the sea in ships, and they were merchants on mighty waters. And they saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke, and he stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves and mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths in their peril. Their courage melted away. Sounds like someone else we just read about. <clears throat> they reeled and staggered like drunkards, and they were at their wits' end. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired ha- haven. So we have an example in the Old Testament of 
God delivering these sailors from this mighty storm. And I don't know, it sounds awful, awful similar to the story that we read in Mark chapter 4. But one of the unique differences here that I see in Mark chapter 4 is that the disciples, at least in this particular account in Mark, never asked Jesus for any help. They just wake him up. They're just like, Jesus, don't you care we're about to drown? Like, you should be as concerned as we are. They don't ever say, Jesus, you should stop this storm, or Jesus, save us. They're simply just like, shouldn't you be as freaked out as we are? They don't ever think to realize that Jesus might be able to deliver them from the circumstances they find themselves on. They're so focused on the storm that they're missing what's in the boat with them. We can see this even as another um, interesting parallel or image, if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, another man who was asleep on a boat that was about to be crashed and drowned in the sea. And the sailors woke him up and, and said, seek your God and save us, right? And then they ultimately threw Jonah off the boat because Jonah was stubborn. Um, and so Jonah's off the boat and it ends up saving the sailors. This is a similar picture or an image, right? Showing that Christ is bringing salvation to uh, people and to where he is going. So it's another image meant to be called back to us. So that is the one first of the three water stories in Mark, right? And then after this calming of the storm, Jesus goes and he um, uh, restores a demon-possessed man. He raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. He even takes the 12 and he sends the 12 disciples out to go and perform miracles, preach the good news, and cast out demons in his name. And then we have this small little... um, little story here in, the, in chapter 6 of Mark where John the Baptist, the end of his life is recounted. So John the Baptist was in custody of Herod, and Herod wasn't killing him um, because he, was kind of, he kind of feared him a little bit, had some respect. He's like, I know that this guy's a righteous man, that he's probably got something to do with God, but I'm not going to take it serious enough to actually repent and listen to him. I'm just going to kind of like keep him at an arm's distance. And then uh, some political intrigue worthy of like a Game of Thrones episode happens. Um, And then you've got ultimately the death of John the Baptist. His head is cut off and, and he dies. And so that's a little story that's recounted and that's an important story to keep in our mind. And then Jesus feeds 5,000 people. He takes some bread and some fish and multiplies it into abundance and feeds 5,000 people. And then afterwards, he, we have this next story, the second story of the water stories in Mark. So let's go ahead and pick up in chapter 6, verse 45. And let's see what are the similarities in this story and differences between the last one. So verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethesda. While he dismissed the crowd after leaving them, he went up to a mountainside to pray. This was something he often did. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. 
So Jesus is separated, right? They've got the geography very uh, clearly laid out in the passage. Verse 48, he saw that the disciples were straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. That's an important phrase to remember. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost or a spirit, and they cried out because they all saw him and they were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. And they were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. You hear that? That's a really important... They, they had just witnessed Jesus multiply fish and loaves. But they still didn't get it. They'd actually even seen Jesus still and calm the storms before, and they still didn't get it. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they landed in Gennesaret and anchored there, and as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized, people recognized who Jesus was. We just talked about a moment where they didn't recognize him. Now people are recognizing Jesus. And they ran through the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. So we have these massive demonstrations of Jesus' power, glory, and who he is. And in the middle of that, we have a story where those who were closest to him fail to recognize him and are still confused as to who he is. They again get into a place where they're fixated on the storm and not focused on Jesus. And I think there's some important imagery that I want to point out in uh, Job chapter 9, verse 8. The passage says that God alone is the one who treads on the waters, right? Again, a demonstration or an illustration of God's power over the water. And then in Exodus 33 is, an, is the story that you may or may not be familiar with. Exodus 33, Moses is in the, up on the mountain, and he's receiving the Ten Commandments, and he's having this encounter with God. And in this encounter of God, the Lord grants him something particularly special. Exodus 33, I'm going to start in verse 17 of that chapter. Or, yeah. Exodus 33, verse 18, or 17 says, And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know... Um, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, show me your glory. He wishes to see the Lord. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name, or proclaim my name, 
the Lord, or as we talked about, or you know the story of Moses, I am, his name, Yahweh, I am in your presence, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one sees me and lives. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on the rock when my glory passes by. I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Again, passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Do you remember what Jesus was doing on the water when the disciples were in the boat? He was meaning to pass by them. And what does Jesus say when they call out to him and when they're terrified of who he is? He says, it is I. I am. Jesus is revealing himself. He's like, it's me. I'm God. It's me. And these images are meant for us to begin to see a deeper and deeper picture of Jesus. So Jesus, again, reveals himself to his disciples. But you would think after all of that, perhaps they would get it, but they don't. So let's keep on. Let's move on to the third passage of uh, third water story. In between all of that, Jesus has a significant confrontation with the Pharisees. Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees who want him to obey the rules that they have set out. But Jesus points out that the rules that they set out honor only men and dishonor God. Jesus heals people. And then, notably, he again feeds 4,000 people. He duplicates the miracle that he had done previously with 5,000, again with 4,000 people. He feeds in mass all of these people. And then we come to this passage where Jesus has a dialogue with his disciples on the boat, on the waters, they're traveling across. We're in chapter 8, verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread. They got on the boat, and they all forgot to pack their lunches. Except one of them, they had, they had only had one loaf. They had one loaf with them in the bread, or in the boat. And so they kind of pull out the one loaf. And I imagine Jesus kind of like... They're kind of looking around, hey, Peter, did you bring bread? No. John, did you bring bread? No. Thomas, hey, I got some bread. Oh, Thomas has got some bread. Anybody else? No. And they like put the bread out. And then Jesus is like sitting there watching them do this. And then Jesus kind of interjects with this statement that totally confuses them. Um, so Jesus kind of just says, be careful. Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? Is that why Jesus is talking about? What is he talking about yeast of the Pharisees? Now, to understand this image, we probably, uh, we need to talk about what is meant by that word yeast. Uh, Leaven is probably, is the better word to use for it, but we don't really use leaven now, although it serves same function, right? So if you put uh, yeast in bread, that's what makes it rise, right? Leaven is kind of like ancient sourdough. Um, you know, they would 
make their bread and they'd have the dough. They'd pull some of the dough aside and they'd set it in a cold, cool, dark place in the house. And what they would do is they would let it ferment and then they would use it in the next batch of bread that they made. Now, the thing about using and doing leaven in ancient times to kind of make your bread rise and be soft and doughy and all of that is that you don't really have food safety in ancient times, right? So like the leaven has the potential to ferment badly or too much and become actually rather poisonous and harmful to you and your family, right? So if you were doing the practice of keeping leaven aside to include in your bread, you needed to make sure that it was a good source of leaven. It wasn't leaven with uh, bacteria in it or poison or sickness in it, right? And Jesus is saying, look, you guys need to be careful of the batch of leaven that Herod and the Pharisees has. Like there's something about their leaven that is sick, that is wrong. And if you were to mix it into your bread, it's going to go all throughout the bread and make the whole loaf bad. He's making this illustration. He's saying, there's something about the Pharisees and Herod. Well, what do we know about the Pharisees and Herod from these stories that we've kind of passed over? What's that? Herod, right, had understanding that John the Baptist was righteous, that something was going on with Jesus, but he's not going to do anything about it. He's not going to respond to it. He's not going to protect John, right? He's going to just kind of eh, keep him over here. And the Pharisees are actively opposing Jesus, trying to get Jesus to fit into their agenda and the way that they want to live their lives. And Jesus is saying, both of them are seeing me, but not understanding who I am. They're, they're ultimately rejecting me. Do not, do not let that be the same thing that happens in your heart. And then, and that's the illustration that Jesus is making But the disciples are confused by it, and they just say, is Jesus mad at us because we only brought one loaf of bread? Um, They're kind of confused. Um, Aware of this discussion, Jesus asks them a very poignant question. He says, why are you talking about having no bread? Like, why are you actually so panicked that only one of you brought bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, here's an important thing, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful pieces did I pick up? Twelve, they replied. And then when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketful pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? you got one loaf here. You don't think that I can't feed the 12 of you? Right? That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, you guys are so fixated on this problem, and you're arguing over who didn't bring the bread, that you're forgetting that I'm here. I'm the one who seems to be able to make bread just multiply, and you guys are concerned about it. You guys are freaking out. You guys are so focused on the problem, so focused on this immediate need that you have missed me again. Don't let the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod 
distract your heart, harden your heart from seeing Christ. And then this, all these narratives lead up to this final conclusion later in the chapter. Verse 27 of Mark chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others says Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He's like, all right, that's what everybody says about me. It's the rumors around town. But who do you say? What about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them to not tell them, tell anyone about him. That marks sort of the halfway point in the book of Mark. It's this revelation of who Jesus is. All up until through the book of Mark, it's all been about who is this man who's doing all of these things? And he's like, I'm the Messiah. And then the second half of the book of Mark is trying to reconcile him being the Messiah with him having to go to the cross. Jesus is calling us to get some clarity this morning. I think Jesus is calling all of us through this series and through this season, and I feel in my own heart a desire and a call to get some focus back, to get some focus back on Jesus, to perhaps ask myself, where has the the leaven of unfaith crept into my heart? Where perhaps am I so fixated on what I think I lack or so fixated on the storm around me that I am forgetting that I'm in the boat with Jesus? Where do I need to get my eyes off of and how can I get my eyes more securely on Christ, the Savior, Jesus, the Messiah? How can I do that? Jesus is calling for us to get clarity about who he is and what he has called us to do. Christ is calling us to get clarity on who he is and what he has called us to. And you might ask, what has he called us to? Well, Jesus says exactly what he is calling us to in the very next passage. This is one of those passages I fear to preach because it is so absolutely clear in what it says that Probably just reading it is sufficient, but let's read it. Mark 8, we're going to start in verse 31. So this is picking right up. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Jesus turned to him and looked at the disciples and he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus begins to say, you like, you've got the idea that I'm the Messiah, but you don't understand what the Messiah must do. I must come, I must die, I must rise again for the Savior of sins and of the world. Christ continues in verse 34. He says, when the called, when, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, Whoever 
wants to be my disciple. It means anyone who must be is my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with holy angels. Christ is calling us, anyone who would be a disciple, to get their eyes up off of trying to hold on to the best life that they can possibly grab hold of. And he's saying, you've got to let go of that. You've got to be willing to pick up the cross. You've got to be willing to follow after me, to be concerned with the things that I am concerned about, to be willing to go after the mission I would have for you. And so I have some questions for us that we need to, I think, sit with. Not just today, but this week, this season. And the question is, is do we sit in our boats looking at everything but Jesus and what he wants for us? Are we sitting in the boat fixated on all the bread that we don't have? Are we fixated on our circumstances? Are we fixated and focused on all of the things except for Christ himself? Are we concerned with maybe even really good things, but for our own self and our own sake? Or are we perhaps asking, ought we ought not to be looking to Christ and saying, Christ, what is it that you want to do in this situation? Where do you want to supply need for me? Lord, where are you calling me to be an active disciple to those I am coming into contact with? Where am I to be a conduit of your love? Where am I to be a faithful representation of your love? Where am I called to speak truth in your word? Where am I called to be unashamed of the fact that I am a disciple of you? Christ is calling us to come know him deeply and then carry him with us into each and every place that we go. Christ wants to be active and with you inside of your family life inside of your work life, inside of your social life. Christ wants to be affecting the way that we spend our time. Things that like, if there's something that we, as particularly as Americans, want to have control over, it's our time, right? We want to have control over what I do, when I do, and how I do it. And Christ is saying, are you including me on how you spend your time? Are you neglecting time with me? Are you so busy rowing the oars of the boat of your life that you're neglecting to spend time with me? And are you so busy with getting the bread that you desire most 
that you're not asking me where you would have where I would have you go and minister where I would have you be a conduit of my presence and my love I believe that Christ is calling us to get our focus on him to align ourselves with his mission to ask ourselves what does it truly mean to be a disciple of Christ that's sold out for him and that doesn't lose our focus on on things that continually turns ourself back to him. Now, it might be really, really easy to read these stories and to be really hard on the disciples. Like, how could they have not gotten it, right? But I'm encouraged because I need at least, if not more, grace than the disciples need. I'm continually, if not daily, distracted by sometimes even really good things, sometimes not so great things. Because I, ah, you know, it just would be so much easier today if I just skipped some time with the Lord. Because i got to go to this thing. i got to go do that thing. That temptation to leave aside the Lord in order for the thing that I feel is urgent or most important or most pressing right now. I have two questions for us to wrestle with this week. First is, is what is one thing that we need to take our eyes off of? What's one thing that maybe we've perhaps been so fixated on, it's consumed all of our heart, all of our mind and our attention, our anxiety rises and falls with this thing? And how do we need to maybe take our eyes off of it a little bit? Maybe perhaps recognize that Christ is in the boat with us and that he's going to supply whatever we need and that he's going to keep us protected, and he's going to calm the storm. What do we need to take our eyes off of? And then how is Jesus calling us to be more fixed on him and his calling for us? Where is Jesus calling you into obedience? Where is Jesus calling you to step up and come into alignment with his will for your life? Is it inside of how you are serving and loving your family? Is it in how you are serving and loving your friends? Are you being Christ to them? Is there something on your heart that you have felt particularly called to, but you've been too afraid to do it because it's a risk of faith, it's a cost of time? Where is the Lord calling you to be more fixed and focused on him and what he's calling you into? I would encourage you to take these questions and not just wrestle with them right now, but wrestle with them this week. Perhaps spend some time praying over them if you can't name an answer to those yet. Ask the Lord to reveal to your heart where it is that you need to shift your focus and how you need to do that. Let's heed the advice of Cameron and the example of Christ. Let us seek quiet solitude with the Lord. Let's set aside the distractions of our to-do list and our phones and all the things that are vying for our attention. And let's, let's make a commitment. Let's find some time, even just 15 minutes, to sit and perhaps sit with those questions and ask the Lord in sincere prayer to reveal where he is calling us and what he wants to do inside of our current situations.
If you would, please join with me in prayer as we pray over that. Heavenly Father, this morning I ask that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would pull open our eyes, and that we would see you through the mist and the storm, and we would see that you are right here with us now, Lord. Lord, I ask that you would make us aware of your spirit the way in which you are ministering to each of our hearts and our minds right now. God, I ask that you would reveal yourself with such clarity that we could not ignore you. Lord, help us to fix our eyes and our understanding on you. Lord, I pray for anyone who is in this room right now who feels like they are being buffeted and drowned by a storm in their life. Lord, I pray that you would make your compassion, your mercy, and your presence known to them. Lord, might you speak into that storm and calm it. Lord, might you give peace to amidst the storm. Might you give confidence and unwavering solidarity amidst the crashing of waves. Lord, might your presence be the thing that is felt more than the wind that blows in those circumstances. Lord, I pray for those of us who are fixated on the things that we lack and the things we believe we need and desire. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know that you do not withhold any good thing from us. Help us to trust you as the Father who gives good gifts, that you are wise. Lord, I pray that you would fill all of our hearts with faith, that you would help us with our unbelief as we seek to lay hold of you in faith. And God, I pray that you would give us a compelling and capturing vision for where you are calling us to follow after you. Might we move just one step closer to you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Conduit, this morning my prayer for you is that as you go from this place, Christ would draw your attention again and again each moment and day to the cross where you would behold his love, his grace and forgiveness for you that no matter what you step into this week that you might know that he is with you and for you. Conduit, know that you are loved and go in peace.